So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing where it ought not, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let him who is in the housetop not go down into the house, nor enter into take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in the winter. For in those days there will be tribulation such as not been since the beginning of creation, which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, whom he chose, he shortened those days, shortened the days. This clearly is talking about Israel and the Jews and the renewed covenant with the Jews. The context is very clear. And there are many people who are wonderful people in the Lord who believe that these events are not future but past tense. And there's different descriptions for these different belief systems. But there's people that love the Lord who believes that these things happened 2,000 years ago. I don't believe that, and I reject that for, to me, what are some pretty common sense observations from the text. The, not the very least is, it's so great a tribulation that's never been before or since. And just even, let alone humanity, but even a Jewish perspective, when Titus and the Roman Legion overran Israel in 70 AD, they came from the north in 66 AD, destroyed Galilee in the northern region, the resistance of the Jewish rebels, and then they came in, they besieged Jerusalem, and they sacked it, and they removed literally every stone upon one another in the Temple Mount. It was brutal, it was vicious. Some of the Jews fled to Masada, some were scattered. We know that maybe a couple hundred thousand Jews were killed during that time, and uh, close to a quarter million plus went into captivity as slaves. Now, this is according to the famous Jewish historian Josephus, who's considered one of the greatest records of authenticity and authority for Jewish history. And by the way, for extra-biblical information, he talks about Jesus and John the Baptist giving historical credence to their person existing apart from a biblical record, let alone all the archaeology that would support the historical person of Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior, King of kings and Lord of lords. I say this because from that time, I remember Pastor Jeremy gave me a book years ago, and it's the history of the persecution of Jewish people in the last 2,000 years, North Africa, Europe, so on and so forth. And it's been brutal. For example, Trotsky, who was the, the mastermind of the rise of the Bolsheviks in the turn of the century before World War I, the Russian Revolution, he was Jewish. And he actually was the guy that was the mastermind behind Lenin and Stalin. He was actually smarter than all of them, but he knew he could never be the leader of the Communist Party in the revolution because he was Jewish. Because Jews were profoundly, historically, radically persecuted by Russians all over the planet at that time, as well as in Central Europe, Eastern Europe, and these places. We know 6 million Jews were killed, at least 6 million Jews, in the death camps of the Germans and the other people. They were not just killed by the Germans. They were killed by the Soviets coming the other way on the Eastern Front as well. Basically, 6 million Jews were eradicated from the European continent. It's incredible, the evil that happened on this planet. There's people still alive who came through it, were a part of it, or affected by it to this day because there are still people living that came through that dark time. And so that tribulation, let alone the 50 million other people that were killed on the planet during World War II, would far surpass any tribulation that came when Titus conquered Jerusalem in 70 AD. That's a very local thing. World War I was huge. World War II was huge. In fact, World War I is so brutal and barbaric, it's almost incomprehensible. As hard as World War II is to understand, World War I is almost just, you can't even wrap your mind around the atrocities of World War I with the gases and the chemical warfare and, you know, quarter million people, like, gassed on one day and, yeah, just whole 
continent, whole nations of people, men, just wiped out, like for England and stuff like that. So when we think about great tribulation and, and letting the Bible speak for itself, and when Jesus said so great a tribulation, this is why I reject what's called a, like a, an all-millennialist worldview that would say that this already happened. I just reject that because to me it doesn't make any sense. Like to compare what Titus did in 70 AD to the Jews to what the planet's done to Jews in the last 2,000 years, let alone World War I and World War II, against the Jews and the tribulation upon the planet. And by the way, this is why during World War I, a lot of people thought it was the end of the world. The rise of Jehovah's Witnesses and the Watchtower Society came during World War I with John Charles Russell, who believed it was the end of the world. And if you lived during that time and you saw the gas mask and heard of hundreds of thousands of people being killed in one week, you would think it was the end of the world too. Then you throw in the, the flu. Remember the flu in uh, 1917, 18? It killed 2% of the world's population. So that would fit pestilence, right? War, rumors of war, global war. And yet, even so, when the League of Nations came together after World War I with President Wilson and these things, and to never let this happen again, they didn't really resolve World War I, thus World War II. So from my perspective, not just because I'm a Calvary Chapel pastor and it's the way we see things, but because just for me personally as a pastor, I just believe that Jesus absolutely has to be talking about future things. And it is Israel. It's Judea. You see, it's Judea. But it's a great tribulation that threatens the entire world. And it's a tribulation that's never been and it'll surpass all other tribulations. So we could have come, we could have been living in Europe in the 1920s or even America thinking, well, uh, that was the worst tribulation ever, but World War II would have surpassed that. There's a greater tribulation coming that will kill 2 billion people on this planet in fulfillment of what we just read in this text. And the key component, and because it says, let the reader understand, I think it's important that you understand, right? Red letter Bible, but parentheses in black. Let the reader understand. So the abomination of desolation is the key to all this. And this is the person that Jesus said, you do not receive me, but another will come in his own name, and you will receive him. Talking about Israel. And one of the key components of the Antichrist, and that's who we're talking about, is that Israel will receive him as a world ruler over them. They will submit to his authority. In fact, it's not hard to figure out because the math is all there in the scriptures. He will reign for three and a half years with a false peace upon the entire planet. We are told he comes from the people who conquer Israel with the conquering of the Rome, and that's why we say the Antichrist comes out of revived Rome, and Rome is Italy. He's the son of perdition. He's got all the, the Revelation 13 tells us he has all the power of the devil. He has a false prophet that does lion signs and wonders. He does lion signs and wonders. And if you look at the four horsemen of the apocalypse in Revelation chapter 6, he's the white horse. He comes out with a false peace conquering the world. He's the Antichrist. In fact, some people actually interpret the white horse as being Jesus. He's so antichrist and appears so much like Christ, some people interpret that passage that it is Jesus. There's no way that's Jesus. Jesus is the white horse in chapter 19, coming with armies of heaven, king of kings, lord of lords. This is the antichrist, okay, white horse, or the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And then that horseman brings the plagues, the death, the wars, the famine, and all that stuff. But see, the first three and a half years, this antichrist comes with power out of Europe. The Jews receive him because the Jews are in Israel. Jerusalem's the capital, according to the United States of America. And they receive him. And he comes to power. He pulls off some great political feat where he brings the whole world together. More than likely harmonizes the Jewish faith and the Muslims that they can exist on the Temple Mount and resolves that whole conflict, the Arab-Israeli conflict, which would be enough to make most of the world worship him. And since most of the planet, more people on the planet believe in aliens, why not believe that that can happen? Because it will happen. And when he brings that together, and that's a real thing, they'll, they'll go for it. They'll go for it. 
Satan said it best. Yea, skin for skin, all that a man has, he'll give to save his life. And people will sell their souls for a bowl of beans. Just ask Esau. Actually, don't, because he's not in heaven. People will sell their birthrights for a bowl of beans. They always say that the communists knew this, uh, whether it was the Chinese, Mao Zedong, or Pol Pot and the Cameroons. They all know. You give people food for the day, they'll do whatever you tell them to do. Because most of the world's starving and living on $3 a day. You give them food for the day, they'll follow you to the ends of the earth. That's what totalitarian authoritarian governments do. And that's what the Antichrist will do. False peace, feed everybody. Everyone's happy. He controls all global commerce. We're told no one can buy or sell without his permission. Look at how the whole economic structure is with the uh, electronic currency and electronic, the way money works, everything works. The wars are all, they're all electronic wars and intelligence wars. It's not, but it will be the real wars like we know them traditionally. Such an unusual time we live in right now, isn't it? Such a strange planet. It's unbelievable. We're seeing things like we've never seen before. This Antichrist, we need to know who he is. And he comes out of Europe. The Jews bow down to him. But what's the key component, we won't be around for this, so don't worry about it, because he's not revealed until that which restrains him is out of the way, Second Thessalonians. But the key component, but you need to understand, because it says let the reader understand. So I need you to understand, okay? So the key component is the temple is going to be rebuilt in Jerusalem for the Jews. And believe me, you, you can Google it. There are lots of Jews, the religious zealots, the Orthodox Jews, backed by U.S. money, primarily out of New York. They want a rebuilt temple. They want to renew the animal sacrifices. They've got the red heifer. They got all this stuff. It's not hard to find. It's intelligence and information that's out there for anyone who wants to look. The Temple Institute has been working on this for over 30 years, zealously and almost fanatically. And at some point, that temple is going to be rebuilt. There's a third temple. Because the Bible in Revelation and in 2 Thessalonians talks about the Antichrist going in the temple. Now, Revelation was written clearly, definitively, no question about it under any analysis after Titus destroyed the second temple. See, there's the first temple of Solomon, the second temple Ezra fortified, Herod the Great fortified it as well. Ezra built it and then Herod the Great fortified it. But that's one that was destroyed by Titus and the Roman Legion in 70 AD. But in 90 AD, when John's writing the book Revelation, he's talking about a third temple that's there. And there's a third temple. It will be rebuilt. And this man will probably have a lot to do with it. And after three and a half years of a fake peace over the planet, controlling all, think how all controlling everything is. You know when they had the riots in London five years ago? Remember the London riots? Do you know they got every single person that did a crime? They got every single person. They shamed every single person. All those riots all over the different boroughs and stuff of London, they got every single person because everyone was on film. And they went in there with their intelligence, and they tracked down every single person. They identified every single person, and they put their pictures in the paper, and every single one of them paid their debt to society for being a part of the London riots. You can Google it and see for yourself. We know there's an all-seeing eye, essentially, electronically, that sees everything. You don't even need to go see. It's, it's just a reality. So this Antichrist, he comes, and then he's going to go into the temple. Now, we're told in other places there's an image, and he makes people worship the image. So a lot of people believe there's like a hologram, if you will, of him in the temple that the whole world sees. We know when the two witnesses described for us in Revelation 11 are killed, that the whole world sends gifts to each other and they rejoice over it. The whole world sees it. It's more than CNN or Fox News or uh, Russia TV or anything like that. It's, it's, it's the ability that no matter where you are, whether it's you got this or your laptop or your desktop or a chip in your forehead, whatever, they're gonna, they're, you're going to be trackable, and you're going to be 
brought into the intelligence and the information of that time. Remember, Daniel himself said at the end of his book that knowledge will run to and fro in the last days and the increase of intelligence. And here's something that I don't share that often. I think I shared it once before from the pulpit. But when I was working with the U.S. Olympic Committee last year, the very first session I sat in on in North Carolina, the guy speaking got up and talked about how they have the microchip technology to work with the brain to enhance athletic performances right now. And he said, this is where this is going in the next 10 years. And they don't even understand like, how that's going to work out in international sporting events. Uh, we have another gender, right? That's a whole other issue, testosterone levels and these sorts of things with third genders and all the sex changes. That's a whole other problem for them. But what they were talking about was microchips that work with your brain to enhance your capacities as an athlete on the highest level. That's exactly like the end of the age stuff right there. That's like left behind, but it really is like come, coming. They said they already have it, and expect it by 2028 in various capacities of society. Now, that's my testimony to you. I'm a firsthand witness. I sat in that room with 13 other elite coaches that are the head coaches or close to being the head coaches of the USOC. And we had these educators from highest level educators, and that's what they got up and said. Let the reader understand the Antichrist is going to control the information age, and he's going to control people, what they do and what they can't do. It's, it's that simple, and that's where it's going. Our responsibility is to preach the gospel and to live the gospel, because like I've said before, and I've been learning this a lot this year, it's not so much what we say, it's how we live. And you can believe the word of God, you can do the word of God, but you need to demonstrate the word of God. And we can't produce holiness, but brokenness produces holiness. So our lives are on display to reflect Christ. That's our responsibility with the Great Commission. We believe it, we receive it, we breathe it, we live it, and we demonstrate our confidence in the crucifixion of Christ and his glorified body by how we go through life and people watch us go through life in the good, the bad, and the ugly of the human experience. And life guarantees us all that for sure. But this Antichrist, when he comes, we're told that the whole world will believe the lie, but we know essentially people do get saved, but how that works, we don't know. God will allow the world to believe the delusion of the Antichrist, this abomination of desolation. Believe this because they've rejected the truth. Second Thessalonians tells us that because they rejected the truth, when they cognitively could understand it in their lifetime, that once the church is up and out, he's going to give them over to that lie. This is the Antichrist. The abomination of desolation is when he goes in the temple and says, I am God. It's at that point that Jews say he absolutely is not God. And they realize they've been duped and they flee, and they're scattered. And that's what's known as the second half of the Great Tribulation period. Three and a half and three and a half. And the Bible gives us the numbers. It gives us the seven years. Daniel 7 gives us the seven years. Excuse me, Daniel chapter 9 gives us the seven years. And then Revelation gives us the 1260 days, which is half of seven years. I mean, it's all there. Like, God's math. It's so simple. The math on the end time for concerning the Great Tribulation and the Jewish people, it's so simple. It interprets itself. So, the elect in verse 20 is not the church. The elect are those from the, that last generation of the Great Tribulation, the Jewish believers and whoever might get saved through their witness during that Great Tribulation period. It's, the, the elect is not the church. It would be an improper interpretation of the Bible to believe that's the church because the Bible tells us God has not appointed us to wrath because of our faith in Jesus Christ. And it tells us that right after it talks about the rapture of Jesus coming for his church. And then in Revelation chapter 6, before the four horsemen of the apocalypse come on the scene, in the chapter they come on the scene, Jesus tells us, it tells us that the wrath of the Lamb has come. 
So everything in Revelation chapter 6, it starts a great tribulation period. It says the wrath of the Lamb has come, but in 1 Thessalonians 5, talking about the rapture, we are not appointed to wrath. Scripture interprets Scripture. So we're not the elect in this context. This is literally like the movie, Left Behind. And whoever gets it after that. Great delusion, but some people are going to get it. God knows I don't need to try and break it down. So then he says in verse 21, continuing on, so that's what we need to understand, the abomination of desolation. And it is the greatest tribulation of all time. It's worse than anything this planet's ever seen, and it's coming. But we're not moved by that because we're not looking for the Antichrist. We're looking for the, the Christ himself. We're looking for the second coming. You know, I was teaching at Montebello on Sunday. So cool. It seems like whenever I guest speak, someone always walks up to me and says, you know, Jesus is coming back. I do. We do. That's the hope. Verse 21. Then if anyone says to you, again, Jewish context, look, here is the Christ, or look, he is there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. This is all going in on that back end of the, the age. But take heed, see, I've told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, okay, so the seven-year tribulation, here we go, Armageddon, the Megiddo, the things described in Ezekiel, all, it's all coming to a head right there. Everything in the Old Testament, prophets, everything in the New Testament. But in those days, verse 24, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they, and that would be the entire planet, will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest part of the earth to the farthest part of heaven. That's how it goes down. And we read about that in Revelation. And we're told in 2 Thessalonians, so when Jesus comes at the armies of heaven, described for us in Revelation 19, as the King of kings and Lord of lords, 2 Thessalonians tells us of the same event that he will destroy the, the wicked one, this, this abomination, this Antichrist, with his coming. We've talked about this. Light and darkness cannot cohabitate. So the moment Jesus is there, the darkness is expelled. It's not, there's nothing. He just shows up and his appearance destroys Satan, the Antichrist, the kingdom of darkness, his coming. And he comes in glory. Now we're told in both 1 John 3 and Colossians 3 that has not yet revealed what we will be, but when he, is, when he comes in his glory, we will share in his glory. And if that's not motivation to per persevere through every hardship and difficulty that life might bring you, I don't know what is. Because worthy is the lamb, and he's coming in glory. And we're told for the saints that we share in his glory. So it's not yet revealed, but when he comes in his glory, we see that by faith, we receive that by faith. We, the church who have been caught up, we come with him in the glory. He comes for us, and then he comes with us at the end of this period. And he establishes the kingdom. So all those Old Testament prophecies, the lion and the lamb, all those, the, the, the dead sea coming to life from the living water that flows from Jerusalem, and the horses with bells on them, and, and uh, that say holiness to the Lord. You know, it's like, yeah, it's coming. It's coming. As sure as the sun rises in the east and sets in the west, or we do what we do in the solar system, you know, it's coming. He's coming. Jesus' first coming was spoken from the dawn of creation and the fall. His second coming has been included in the communication from God to humanity throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. And he's coming. The end of the age, and it's going to be the kingdom. And the one who holds it together is going to establish the kingdom in righteousness. And never again will there be one injustice. And by the way, even as the age goes forward, whatever that looks like, in glorified bodies, in new heaven, new earth, all these things. Know this, there's not one injustice ever in the past that is not set straight 
and there'll be no more injustices in the future. God will set it straight. And we say amen and hallelujah. We read on. Verse 28. Now learn this parable from the fig tree when its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves. You know that summer is near. So also when you see these things happening, know that it is near at the door. And surely I say to you, this generation by no means pass away till all these things take place. Early on, after Israel was reestablished as a nation in 1948, after the UN Security Council resolution, where three out of five countries voted their right to exist, and it was all kind of parition between the Arab Muslim villages and Jewish sectors and all the chaos that was created in that, many people felt like the generation spoke of Israel becoming a nation. And so for years, people thought, okay, well, usually in the Bible, a generation's 40 years. So you can imagine, like, when Hal Lindsey wrote Late Great Planet Earth, Pastor Chuck's preaching, every, like Vernon, Vernon McGee's preaching, Chuck Swindoll, all these guys. Like, I mean, they're just some, based upon how they understood this passage, and eschatology does get tricky, they, many felt that the generation benchmark was that Israel became a nation. And so that's why so profoundly in the 70s, okay, a nation in 48, May of 48, so you're thinking 58, 68, 70, it's 30 years, so 78, 88, right? Do you remember in the 80s, you might remember, there's a booklet, 88 Reasons, Jesus is Coming Back in 88. You've been around for a while, you've seen, you've seen a lot of little dog and pony shows come and go, you know? And that was a big one, I'll tell you what, I was first year in ministry, and I was like, you people are like, well, there's 88 reasons he's coming in 88. Now, there's one good one he's not. No one knows the hour. We're coming to that next, okay? I got one good one why he's not, like, why you can't say that. That was the basis for that. And I, I think as we look at things now, 30 years later, people are still saying, like, well, you know, there's a, there's a good argument that a generation is 70 years. Because what does it say in Psalm 91? The days of man are 70 years by measure of strength, 80. So people take that interpretation and say, hey, it's 70 years I would just say, look, whatever it is, this is what we know. Once these things start happening, as described by Jesus, they're going to happen within one generation. They're going to accelerate. There's going to be a massive acceleration. It's not drawn out like a long, protracted, drawn-out process. Once those things really kick in, these things described that he describes for the nation of Israel, it's happening fast. So this fig tree that you see it blooming in the spring and you know summer's near, I do believe more than likely the interpretation really is, again, Israeli, Jewish interpretation. is not so much for the church. We don't want to force things in the Word of God. It's like putting Cinderella's slipper on Drizella. It looks like it fits, and it goes, bow, right? We don't want to do that. You know, let, let God be true and every man a liar. And right now, we just don't know. Verse 31, look what Jesus says now. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Take heed, watch, and pray, for you do not know when the time is. It is like a man going to a far country who left his house and gave authority to his servants and to each his work and commanded the doorkeeper to watch. Watch, therefore, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, in the evening, at midnight, at the coin of the rooster, or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch." Catch that? There's three watches there. We'll come back to that closing. Some really neat application for the church, because now we're all about the church. See, we could, if we were living in the tribulation days and we could properly read the Bible, presuming God would let us do that and not be given over to depravity and insanity, which 
he'll give you over to if you don't respond to his revelation. That can certainly happen. Romans 1, he gives them over to the base mind. But presuming we could, we could count the minute the Antichrist goes in there, like, oh, set your time watch, you know, pull out, pull out your day planner. Three and a half years, 1,260 days, here we go. And he's going to come with all his people. You know, you could do that. But you can't do that when Jesus comes for his church. That's very clear. He says in verse 31, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. As we gather tonight as the church of Jesus Christ, we know that God has given us his word, that his word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We know that all scripture is profitable, and it's to guide us in doctrine, understanding, correction, and reproof. We know that no one ever spoke by their own will in the word of God, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. We know that his word is living and powerful. We know that his word does not return void, and we know it'll do what he accomplishes it. We know he said of his prophecies, put me to the test. Everything I speak comes to past. There's no one else who can say it. There's no human, there's no world religions. I mean, that's what makes the Jehovah's Witnesses so easy to discredit, because John Russell said Jesus was coming back in 19, during 1917, 18. It didn't happen, so they keep changing stuff. By God's standard of his word, someone says it's going to happen, it doesn't happen, then they're a false prophet. You know, you start saying that God's, when you start claiming to speak for God and you say something's going to happen a certain way, especially the second return of Christ, and it doesn't go that way, that puts you in the false prophet category. The word of God is the final authority, and God said, my word always comes to pass. So in describing, like, for example, the destruction of Tyre by uh, Alexander the Great, he talks about the city being reduced to rubble and people fishing off the city. You're like, how in the world does that happen? But of course, if you know the story, it's all there for us in extra biblical writings Alexander the Great destroyed Tyre was so frustrated with the people that he destroyed the city crushed it to rubble and then they built jetties from the original old city and people still fish off those jetties to this day in Lebanon like God says just put me to the test I I tell you 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 talk about the compound probability of Jesus fulfilling just three of the prophecies in his first coming we've talked about this recently but he had to be born in Bethlehem, and he was. So could you control where you were born? Think where you were born. I was born in Cleveland, Ohio. What did I have to do with me being born in Cleveland, Ohio, March 21st, 1961? Like nothing. Did I exist before time, outside time? Oh, Heavenly Father, I think I want to be born. I want to be born in the Midwest. I want to be born into this family. Yes, no. So how could Jesus, if he is a charlatan, or as Billy Graham says, he's Lord, liar, or lunatic. So if he's not Lord, how does he... How does that happen? Okay, so you might say that's dumb luck. Okay, it's dumb luck that he happened to be there because anyone born in Bethlehem during that time could say, hey, I'm the Messiah. Okay, but that he's a Nazarene. He was raised in Nazareth. And you start adding these things. Oh, you can say, well, all right, so he went on the donkey's colt in fulfillment of prophecy. Well, he couldn't manufacture that. But how about them casting lots for his clothes when he's on the cross? He's totally humiliated on the cross. He can't control these guys and make them cast lots for his clothes like it says in Psalm 22. He can't make sure when he's dead that they put his body in a rich man's tomb. You know what I'm saying? Like hundreds of prophecies that the law of compound probability is off the charts. It's, it's basically mathematically impossible and sane for one person to fulfill even seven of those. Or as the classic uh, law of probability, God's word being fulfilled, goes this way. One person fulfilling seven prophecies of Jesus is equated in the law of compound probability to the entire state of Texas. You ever driven through Texas, by the way? It's a big state. I've taken the 10 from El Paso all the way to Louisiana. And I can tell you, it just goes on and on and on. The entire state of Texas, three feet deep in silver quarters, and you find the one that's marked. That's the law of compound probability of one person fulfilling. Those are the numbers. 
it, you know, if you do the science of the numbers. God's word is truth. And that's the one thing that outlasts everything else. He says, look, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. His word will stand. So when we receive Christ and we believe that and we're born of the spirit and all the promises of God are yes, yes, or no, no in Jesus, they're ours. When he says we're saved by grace, we're saved by grace. We're always saved by grace. We're never saved by works. When he says it's God who wills and works in us for his good pleasure by his Holy Spirit, that's what he does. We don't work for salvation. We let the Holy Spirit work through us as a result of salvation. We don't manufacture holiness like some cult or world religion. We produce holiness as we're crushed by the Lord and his glory comes out of crackpots, which we all are, because his treasure is in earthen vessels. This is what the word of God does. We believe the word of God. Billy Graham changed the world. If you've seen the documentary on Netflix of Billy Graham, it came out about six months ago. It's incredible. My wife was watching. I saw it a couple months ago. She was watching. We were just crying. And I said this before, basically, uh, spoiler alert. He saves the world. He brought down communism. He ministered to the country during 9-11, saved, you know, healed. He ministered to every president. They got presidents talking about Billy Graham. He, everything, he changed Russia. He defeated communism. It's incredible. He's like, he did it. He solved, you know, the world's problems. I mean, 60 years of this man's life is incredible because he believed in God's word. The defining moment of his life was 1947 up here at, by Forest Homes in the San Bernardino Mountains. When the person who discipled him renounced his faith in the word of God and said only country bumpkins believe the Bible, Billy, and Billy had to wrestle with that because it's the person who's discipled him, his boss, Templeton. And then he cried out to the Lord, Billy did, and, the, and, and he said, I'm going to take it at your word. And then came the L.A. revival the next, right after that, the Los Angeles crusade with Billy Graham. And then it all just exploded exponentially and changed and saved the world. Watch the documentary. It's mind-blowing to watch the Billy Graham documentary that's on Netflix right now. It is so inspiring. I just, I've, I've watched like three times. I just cry. I just cry. It's unbelievable. The impact of one person's life who believes the Bible and lives it and shares it. All that we see in this realm of time, space, and matter, it will fade away. But the word of God working in you and through you will never fade away. Right into the point where we're like Stephen or sharing the gospel with those who are tormenting us and persecuting us and killing us, we'll see Jesus standing right at the right hand of the Father. And because we believe that word, we'll forgive those who are persecuting us for that word. Because that's who we are. We're the church. Whatever we go through in this journey, every promise from Genesis to Revelation is for each one of us in Jesus' name. His word will never fail us. There is no valley too deep and too dark. His word doesn't go there. There's no mountaintop so high and so great that his greatness doesn't go above it. Or as David said in Psalm 139, if I go to the ends of the earth, you're there. At the depths of the grave, I make my bed in hell. <laughs> you just, God's word. Let us never be moved from God's word. Psalm 119 just describes all things that God's word is for us. So before I go on, let me just affirm again, every promise is the child of God's. And as I have four children I love so much, and I know where they are today. Leah's over here just came back from Barbados with her husband and our grandkids. Luke and Belle and Clementine are there in Vero Beach. Timmy's in Rome, and Hannah and Nate are in Vero Beach. I pray for my kids like you pray for your kids. And I love my kids, and I do anything for my kids. And just think, like, think how much God loves each one of us. And he's given us his word 
You think a trust in an estate is worth putting your trust in? The word of God is our trust in our estate. And we're joint heirs with Christ, Romans 8 tells us. Heaven and earth will pass away. There's a new heaven, there's a new earth coming. And we got glorified bodies in it. His word will never fail. Trust him. Trust his word, because that will really prove who we are in the dark day and on the mountaintop. Then you look at verse 32. But of that day, that is the day that Christ comes for his church now, because we could know the day and hour for the end of the tribulation. But of that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but the only, but the only Father. It bothers some people that Jesus says he doesn't know because if the Son of God's all-knowing, then how can he not know? But I put this verse 32 for what it's worth right there with Philippians where it says, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who took on the form of a man, took on the place of a servant, and humbled himself even to the point of death, even the death of the cross, which was capital punishment. Jesus was totally human and totally God. So whatever he's saying here, I can assure you it has nothing to do with taking away from his position as God, as the Son of God, all-knowing, all-present, all-aware, all-powerful. So whatever's being said here, it does not interpret the rest of the Bible about Jesus. The rest of the Bible interprets this about Jesus. Because I know people have been caught up on this. Like, oh, well, how do, if he's all-knowing, how does he not know? Listen, man, he took on human flesh. That's like you and me becoming an ant and going to a picnic getting squashed by other ants. Like, that's what he did. And he, we know he, he submitted to certain limitations. Satan, if you're the son of God, throw yourself off the temple right here. It is written, you shall not attest the Lord your God. See, Satan presented Jesus with a more favorable way than the cross. And wouldn't you like a more favorable way than the cross? The way to glory is suffering. We are buried with him in baptism, in his death and burial. And we are raised with him in his resurrection to glory. The crucifixion precedes the crown. And narrow is the gate that leads to life, and few go thereby. You want a wide path? Go have your best day now. You want the eternal glory? Be sold out and die to self now. That's the distinction of the real gospel, the true gospel. Because Jesus said, if you follow me, pick up your cross daily. Deny yourself and come after me. It's not the easy way. It's the right way. It's the way of life. And Jesus said, few enter thereby. And that construction to make us like Christ is a buffeting of the cross in our own life to become like Christ. Jesus humbled himself and took limitations when he came to earth. He could have established the kingdom a different way, but he did not. And thus we find him in the garden on our behalf of our salvation, saying, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. But there was no other way. There was not an easy way to throw himself out of the temple and be worshipped to defeat Satan that way. That was not the way. The way for our redemption, for the redemption of our souls, is very costly, was the way of the cross. And he submitted to it. No one knows. We'll know when you hear the trumpet or you go, and you see him. You'll know. It's not the dying for Christ that's the hard part. It's the living for Christ. So if we just focus on dying to ourselves while living for Christ, that'll keep us plenty engaged. We'll let him do the God things. The things that reveal belong to us and to our children. The secret things belong to the Lord. Amen? Yeah. One more here, too. And he says in verse 33, take heed and watch. Verse 35, watch, therefore. Verse 37, 
And what I say to you, I say to all. Oh, I love that. I've never caught that before. What I say to you, I say to all, like, like all the church age, like George Mueller 100 years ago, like Hudson Taylor 150 years ago, like Amy Carmichael 70 years ago, like Elizabeth Elliot 5, 10 years ago, like Pastor Chuck dying, gasping for air with lung cancer in an oxygen tank and in excruciating pain. What I say to you, I say to all, the entire church age, watch. That's why when people come up to me and say, you know, Jesus is coming back, I smile. The last day I was, the last week I was a coach for the U.S. Olympic surfing was at the adaptive surfing contest down at La Jolla Shores and like the Special Olympics. And one person came up to me, and I've told this story once, but there's two guys together. One guy was talking about like, hey, you know, like I grew up, you were my favorite surfer in the 80s. I'm like, yeah, it was a long time ago. That's what I always say, because it was. And, uh, but then this other guy looks at me and goes, man, you know, the Lord's coming back. I was like, yeah. But when he said it, I just kind of had like that, like that like chicken skin moment. Like, it just had a little extra authority when he said it. Because, you know, if you've got the frequency, if you speak Chinese and someone else speaks Chinese and they greet you in Chinese and everyone else is speaking English, you're like, whoa. Like, it's a frequency. You know it. And it seems like whenever anyone says the Lord's coming back to me, I, I kind of get like this little, yeah. And again, at Montebello. And I'm just shaking people's hands when I leave. And this lady goes, you know, Jesus is coming back. I'm like, there's the frequency, right? Watch. Watch, 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 watch. What are we watching? Who's in charge of Europe? No. What are we watching? Cashless society? No. What are we watching? Israel? No. That's all going to play out. I don't need to watch world news to, to, know, to be watching, to be serving the Lord. I need to be watching for the Lord. Watch for the Lord in your morning devotion and hear his voice and know the frequency. Watch for the Lord when you see events in your life. And you're like, Lord, here I am, your servant. Use me. And you're sensitive to the moment. And you're alert to the moment. And it's always there to serve someone else. Watch like you're, you know, Philip in a deserted place, like in a fruitful place. And God says, now go to a deserted place. Watch. Watch is being in tune to the Lord. As we would say, we're not looking for the Antichrist. We're looking for Christ. That's who, that's who the Savior of the church Watch. And as we watch this little, look at this little phrase in verse 34. It's like, watching for the Lord is like a man that went away. And he gave authority to his servants each to do his work. So we're just doing our work. We wake up and we do the best we can to be the person we're meant to be in Christ. He's working in us and through us. And we're doing as best we can to be obedient to the things he's called us to do on behalf of our family and our relatives and our stuff like that. And we're doing the best we can, moms, wives, raising children, best we can, dads going off to work, dealing with this situation, doing with that situation, persevering through this trial or tribulation and testing or tragedy. He gave authority. What did Jesus say in Matthew 28? All authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples. He, he is the ultimate authority, the final authority, and he gives us authority, authority to fulfill his will in our life as we look to him daily to seek it and know what it is and obey it and to be attuned to it. The Lord's return is like a man. And he says, he gave authority. Each to do his work. And we're told to be doing that work with anticipation that any moment the boss shows up and the job is done. I know when Nate was here, my son-in-law, he made very clear that we understood we're not employees of the Lord. I love when he said that. God didn't save you to be your boss, you be an employee. He saved us to be his children and join heirs with Christ, his son. Tremendous difference in how we view our relationship with the Lord. He's not the boss in that sense. He's our Heavenly Father. That's why Romans 8 says we call him Abba Father. And as we go through hardships and let them work in our life, it shows that testimony and we are joint heirs as it goes on to say there in Romans chapter 8. 
The ultimate exhortation and application is in this phrase, to watch, watch, watch. To live with that alertness and sensitivity to the Holy Spirit in our life. From our prayer life, from what God's speaking to us in his word, from circumstances around us, and just being alert and sensitive to how God wants to use you. Watch. Be about the Father's business. Be sensitive to the Lord and be useful and fruitful to the Lord. And we say yes and amen.